Well, hello and welcome to part three of our series of things that make you go, hmm. What were the hmms, Will? Mysterious messages from the Messiah's missives. Absolutely. So we are in the Red Letter Days series overall, where we pick up the letters that Jesus gives to the churches for John to articulate in, oh, that's a good word, Revelation 2 and 3. And um, we are, as I said, part three, which is we've called Named and Shamed. Named and Shamed. So part one, we looked at rewards and riches. Part two, we looked at insightful imagery. And this week, we're going to look at Named and Shamed. We're just going to look at two particular people, individuals, groups that we want to, yep. to describe and discuss. And um, as we've said um, in our previous videos, uh, Revelation is full of images and pictures and details and places and names that if we don't kind of research and look into those things can be a little bit head scratchy. They're mysterious. They are very mysterious. And so what we're hoping that these series have done is to maybe shine a bit of light on some of those things, take us back into the word or a little bit of a historical context to help us understand. And today will be exactly the same. At least it will be. that's what I prepared. That's the fun. Yeah. So, so we're going to jump straight in and we're going to look firstly and review the first two weeks. So I'm going to quickly look at rewards and riches, which is what we did in series one. Also, just to say as well, actually, or part one, what um, Chris Alton has done little bios of all of the cities. Mm, they're to, really good. To the really seven good. churches. So that's available for you to find on YouTube. Um, and so again, you kind of have a bit more context. So we looked at rewards and riches as our first point. And really, we kind of asked the question about how often we think about our lives, the other side of glory, <laughs> of Jesus' return. Um, when the final judgment's been done, the white throne has been brought to bear and, and he's judged everyone, what happens into eternity? And, um, and I think we talked about how we don't think about that enough, basically, mm. but Jesus encourages us to think that way. And in yeah, fact, definitely. the New Testament writers encourage us to think that way. Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 14, and we talked a bit about this, about the work that we build in our lives. And I talked about gladiators. Tell me you've seen gladiators since. I've still not seen gladiators. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. That's a line from Gladiator. Is, yeah, sounds epic. And it's kind of based really much, uh, a lot on what Paul says here, that um, the things that we do in life build something, and then that work that we have built will be judged by fire, okay? And what we then, what comes through the fire will be what we receive in eternity. And um, Paul is saying, as believers, we're judged based on our actions, our obedience, and how we've lived in this life, what God has given us, how we've stewarded it well, how we've trusted him well, and we'll pick up more of that on this. So, but but they will all be judged, but there's a special judgment for believers, the Bema seat that we talked about, and that James and Paul um, and uh, Peter all talk about crowns and, and receiving a reward in eternity. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, not to store up treasures on earth, but to store treasures in heaven instead. And we can do that by the way that we live. And so therefore, how we live in our lives now, in the 80 to 120, I'm going for 160 years that we get on earth, invest something into eternity. And so we just picked up four particular um, topics, themes that we've kind of picked out in the different yeah. rewards that Jesus describes that he'll give the churches if they overcome. Mm. If they conquer. One was around honor. Uh, secondly, was around revelation, receiving revelation of something. Third was about glory, and fourth was about rule. 
And under honor, we talked about the tree of life that we'd have access to in the, mm. the heart of paradise, this white stone that we'd be given um, that speaks of honor and overcoming, the being written in the book of life, being given a citizenship in the new Jerusalem. So that spoke of honor. And we talked about revelation, that there was hidden manna that we could um, have access to. And we know that manna is about the word of God and the provision of God that he would write the name of the Father on us, that he'd write on us a new name. So again, we have these aspects of revelation of who God is and what he's done in our lives. Then the third one's about glory um, and about being given the morning star, about being clothed in white. And we talked about not drab wardrobes, so just all rocking in the same row, but being given this incredible wardrobe that would speak of glory, being pillars in his temple and then rule, about being given a crown of life, authority over the nations and sitting on the throne with Christ. I'm going to watch it again. Sounds I, great. How do we do that in, how long do we take on that one? Four hours? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to do it justice? Do it only 40 minutes. Like. <laughs> yeah. So if you've not seen that, maybe go back and watch that before even carrying on here if you want to. Or by all means, stick with us because we'll pick up some other stuff and you can always go back to it. But I have a question mm -hmm. that I would like you to consider if you're by yourself or if you're with your group and life group or with others that maybe you could chat a bit about together. So here's the question. And um, once I've read the question, why not pause this and then have a chat and then jump back in when you're ready. But here's the question, okay? It's a two-parter. What can cause us to lose sight of our eternal future and rewards? So that's the first one. What can cause us to lose sight of that? We know that they're, they're, they're ahead of us, but what can cause us to lose sight of it? And then the second question is to kind of a solution to the first one, which is, and what can we do to keep our focus on our eternal hope. What sort of things can we practically do to help us to do that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question will be up on the screen. What can cause us to lose sight of our eternal rewards and future? And what can we do to help us keep our focus on our eternal hope? So there you go, have a chat, have a little discussion, and then jump back in. And I'm gonna hand over to Will, who's gonna do a little overview of part two. that's been an interesting and challenging thing to discuss together and you've uh, come up with some good thoughts to chat around there. Uh, I'm going to just take us on for a little recap of insightful imagery which we looked at in our second episode of Things That Make It. Mm. Very well. And um, so in that episode we looked at some tips for interpreting the Bible and uh, Rich very helpfully gave us a few tips and said that the Bible is the best resource to interpret the Bible which I think is particularly useful to know for Revelation because there's, like we've said, there's a lot of things in there which can, could be difficult to understand, but it's good then to know that we're not painting Revelation with a, a new color or yeah, with a different right. um, pad of paint, or whatever. It's, it's the colors that we see all through the word come into clearer focus, hopefully in Revelation. You can trace those threads back through and use the word to interpret the word in that way, which Absolutely. is really, really useful. Images can have multiple meanings. We talked about the bright morning star, um, and if you want two polar opposites, <laughs> the bright morning star can be used to describe Satan yeah. and Jesus. So it's really important that we know um, what is being described and why the image is being used, which we've talked about. Um, 
Rich also reminds us that the original language can help us. The Greek and the Hebrew that you find in the word um, can help us to understand more of, of what some of those really significant words mean mm. for us. And again, there are lots of tools and resources to help us to do that. And we have one another. We're really happy to chat about that anytime and we can chat among ourselves about that as well. And on that note, the church and the Holy Spirit that is within us is our final tip for interpreting the Bible. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, the author uh, of the word, the author of our faith, the one who wrote it all. Uh, and we have one another. That's God's design. He's put us in church to be able to do that in community. So we can interpret the Bible in, in all of those ways. And we'll be on really solid and safe mm. grounds to do that within those um, boundaries, if you like. Yeah, it's really key. So then with that in mind, Rich picked up a couple of things from Revelation 2 and 3, which are slightly more mysterious, but which once you look into them, you see them more clearly. I'm not going to give any spoilers about that because I think you did that well in episode 2 and it's available to watch if you'd like to look back and watch it. Um, and we also talked about the image of Jesus described in Revelation mm. 1, which is an insightful image. All that is described of Jesus is very insightful. We talked about his um, trumpet-like prophetic voice that he is the son of man, which means that he's the one everyone was waiting for, the, the one that was to come that would overcome the enemy and sit on that throne as others couldn't do in the way that he could do. He's among the lampstands, among the church. He's got his priestly garments on. He's got his white head and hair, speaking of his purity and his antiquity. He's got eyes like fire that are penetrating, that see right to the very heart of the issue into our very souls. Bronze feet that are... are uh, burnished in the in the in the fire in the furnace a mouth like cascading waters speaking of the the roaring uh, nature and the prophetic nature of worship that we see around the throne in heaven as well he's holding all of the messengers of the church in his right hand he's got the word in his mouth his face is shining like the sun it's a mega mega <laughs> yeah. image that we see of jesus when john falls down like someone who's dead yeah, absolutely <laughs> It's this immense and captivating description of Jesus's all-sufficiency, which he says yeah. to John, here's who I am, and now here's what I have to say to the churches in light of, of who I am and my all-sufficiency. And so really the, the, the question for me for us to, to consider is in that image, which you'll find in Revelation 1, verses 9 to 16. I'm just going to check. Just check it's there. I'm, check. I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> in Revelation 1, 9, uh, 9 to 16, what aspect of the image of Jesus do you find most, most comforting and most challenging? Mm. So as you look through that description of Jesus, what for you is a real comfort to know that this is who Jesus is? And what do you find to be a challenge in how you walk day to day or in actually something that Jesus might be pulling us up on potentially? Or you just find, wow, that's, that's, that's really challenged me that I've seen Jesus in that way and, and I'm going to actually change something in light of that. Good question. So what's most comforting and what's most challenging about the image of Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1? Have a chat, have a pause, think about that question and we'll come back to look at the main event for today, those that are named and shamed. Named and shamed. In Revelation 2 and 3. So we hope that was helpful. Great questions to consider and I uh, hope that was a really good discussion and you didn't go too far off piste, you know, like start talking about sandwiches or something. Just stayed on track and talked about Jesus. But um, what we're going to talk about next are named and shamed. And we're just going to pick up two particular um, 
things really. We're going to pick up a person and we're going to pick up a group of people. And so I'm going to start by the group of people. Mm. And uh, the group of people are the Nicolaitans and was going to talk about Jezebel. And um, we're going to look firstly in, in Revelation 2. So if you could just pop your Bibles open. Um, you may already be there, which is great. But Revelation 2, verse 6. And Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, but this is in your favor. So he's listed some things where he's challenged them. But he says, but you've got this going for you. Okay, this is, this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Okay, so if I end up, by the way, say Nicolaitans and Nicolaitans, don't worry about it. You are forgiven. Yeah, you are forgiven. But he, he specifically names this group, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Okay, and then if you jump forward a little bit further into the same chapter, this time Jesus is addressing the church in Pergamum. And in verse 15 of uh, Revelation 2, Jesus says, In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. And, and so we, we kind of find this mysterious group. And, and this group has been a challenge to theologians over the years. They've kind of scratched their head a little bit about who the Nicolaitans are. But it seems to be that although they're quite mysterious, um, there is a growing understanding of, of what they were about. And, it was a, a false doctrine, a false teaching that was that had crept into the church that had actually been around before Christianity in, in its kind of basic understanding and, um, and philosophy, but, but that it had crept into Christian teaching that may have stemmed from uh, Nicholas, who's mentioned actually in, in Acts 6. This isn't definite, but he's, he's listed in Acts 6 as um, able to serve tables. Maybe he had been caught up in this false teaching and he'd spread it. And it stems from a false teaching that became rife, particularly at the end of uh, the, 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 uh, when the Bible write, uh, letters are being written by Paul and Peter around Gnosticism, which is uh, born out of dualism. And um, Gnosticism, just in a nutshell, three things just to kind of pin it on really. Number one is they believed that all material things were evil and bad and all spiritual things were good. And that never the twain shall meet because if it's physical, it's bad. And if it's spiritual, it's good. Okay. Then they also believe this, that um, some humans, many humans, some humans had within them, although physically evil, a divine spark that was sort of trapped in this physical being okay, that was evil. But within them was a divine spiritual spark that needed to be released. And that the only way that you could release this divine spark was by gaining secret spiritual knowledge. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of key things. And because they believed that all things physical were already inherently evil, that actually physical things would only ultimately rot, decay, and die, or die and decay, that therefore, whatever you did with your body was kind of irrelevant because it was evil anyway. So, you know, indulge. Mm. Indulge in whatever you want to eat, get drunk. If, you know, take drugs, um, sleep with whoever you want. It was basically just, just give yourself over to that because actually the divine part of you is, is the spiritual part and that will somehow be released in the end by special secret wisdom and knowledge. So you can see why that was a problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it also shifted and tainted how they saw Jesus as well, that they couldn't believe that he could be fully man and fully God if, if humanity is inherently evil and God is inherently good. So they had a problem with that as well and they started to mess around with, with that, which is a really, really important thing, mm -hmm. but we won't pick up that now. But you can see if you go back a little bit, a verse earlier, in Romans 6, verse 14, the teaching that, uh, that Jesus is challenging is a teaching that was like that given by Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin. And we know that, in the, go back to Numbers 31, 
that Balaam was this prophet for hire who Balak had, was a king who was afraid of Israel, called Balaam in and said, I want you to curse God's people. Three times he tries, three times he fails. He ends up blessing them. And Balak gets more and more angry with Balaam for blessing instead of cursing God's people. But Balaam is not allowed by God to curse them. He can only bless them. And then finally, Balaam realizes the only way we can cause a problem here is to, is to make God's people sin. And so he presents a temptation. He says to, Balak, uh, to Balak, get um, all of the temple prostitutes out and, and get the men of Israel to sleep with these women and that will cause sin and then God will judge the sin. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Okay, and finally Phineas comes in and he deals with it and God um, stops the, the judgment that he's brought to bear on, on God's people. But, but ultimately what Balaam taught Balak to do was to cause God's people to compromise. Mm. Compromise by sexual sin, compromise by eating food, sacrifice to idols, two things that God had specifically said that they weren't to do. And in the same way, the Nicolaitans were causing God's people to compromise. Yeah. And it was still around food sacrifice to idols yeah. and sexual sin. And so they were basically, Nicolaitans were saying, look, it doesn't matter, do what you want. Have, you have license to live however you want to live. Your spirit is saved, your body you can do with what you want. And so you can see how that would lead to mm. compromise, to sin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is something that Jesus himself specifically calls out and says, I hate this because it's leading to um, my people to, to sin. Now, this wasn't just about indulging in their earthly desires and, and physical desires and lusts, but actually what was tied into this as well was a pressure that Christians and Jews were facing in this first century where the Roman emperors had decided to make themselves gods. Usually that happened posthumously. After they died, they were made gods. But then later on, a living emperor became a god. And for a Roman, it's like, I've got loads of gods. Throw another one into the mix. It's fine. If, you know, lob in. Nero, I'm good to worship him as well. And they would bring people to the temple, to special feasts, and Christians and Jews were expected to um, eat the food that had been sacrificed to the current Caesar as a god. And if they didn't take that food, they were regarded as being um, unloyal or disloyal, yeah. sorry, to, to yeah. Caesar. And it caused big problems of persecution. So this wasn't just about indulging, it was no. also about um, avoiding persecution. So you can see why the teaching of the Nicolaitans to some was appealing because yeah, actually yeah. they could get around this stuff and not face mm -hmm. persecution or they could indulge in their um, fleshly desires, if you like. And so living in a, in a world where there's sin, living in a world where people do things and culturally they have no problem with it, but God has specifically told us not to live that way. It's that battle. It's am I gonna, am I gonna fit in with the world or am I gonna be more and more distinct mm. because I'm following Jesus? Am I gonna compromise or am I gonna put myself in the firing line? And so those were the challenging times, the mm. temptation to pursue worldly desire or avoid persecution mm. or stay true to the gospel, stay true to Jesus. And, mm. and so that's why the Nicolaitans were such a problem. And I guess that feeds into then yeah. Jezebel and some of the things that yeah, were happening there. Yeah. They really were named and shamed, weren't they? Jesus was, <laughs> did not like the Nicolaitans. He had no, no, absolutely but right. But like, yeah, it is very, lots of, there are lots of overlap with um, the reasons why Jesus uh, calls out Jezebel as someone who is named and shamed among the, the community as well. And we find that reference in Revelation 2 and verses 18 to 29 in the letter to the church in Thyatira. And I'm just going to read that to give a bit of context to what we're talking about here. So... It says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. 
you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. They're both things that you've mentioned, Rich. That's true. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her in, into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her practices. I'll kill her children with a plague, then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts. I'll give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I do not put any other burden on you, but hold on to what you have until I come. Mm. The one who is victorious and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will shepherd them with an iron scepter, shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear to hear should listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So Jezebel, we, we know the name more commonly from Old Testament Jezebel, who existed about 900 years previous to the Jezebel that's mentioned here in Revelation 2. Mrs. Ahab. Miss, Mrs. Ahab is, is the, old, the old Jezebel, yeah. Um, but, but this Jezebel referenced in Revelation 2 had a reputation as a prophetess. So she obviously had a, a track record of and a reputable voice as far mm. as giving accurate predictions about the, the future was concerned. Um, and she used that voice to encourage and provoke the Christians in Thyatira to take part in idolatry and immorality, uh, which is probably why she called herself Jezebel, because that was just like what um, King Ahab's wife Jezebel yeah. was doing in the Old Testament. In, in the book of Kings, we read that she wanted to merge the Israelites' worship with the worship of, of Baal, the idol Baal, and so much so that um, her influence on, on the nation and upon the king was so much so that God's um, description of King Ahab reads like this in 1 Kings 16.33. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Mm. So much so was the influence of Jezebel on this weak yeah. king that gave in to all that she said had to be done. She was killing all of the prophets left, right and center. She tried to kill Elijah. Um, and she was just a, a really evil character. Nightmare. And she was a nightmare, yeah. <laughs> um, but really promoting idolatry and yeah. immorality. They were the two things that she was um, really going after among the people of God. And so this Jezebel that we read about in Revelation 2 has similar values, if you can call them values. Um, but what exactly was she teaching? So she, she had teaching that was becoming rife in the community. And Jesus is, is saying to John, I, I'm angry about this, that they're tolerating this woman Jezebel. So what actually was she teaching? And again, we, we come back to Gnosticism and dualism, um, which essentially says that there are, there are two distinct separate uh, types of thing among any kind domain so to speak so in the domain of morality there's right and wrong mm -hmm. in the domain of religion there's good and evil in the domain of substances and things there's physical and, and non-physical and this particular branch of dualism this type of gnosticism was saying that there's body and there's spirit mm -hmm. and the two things are separate they can't interact so whatever you do with your spirit doesn't have an Im uh, whatever you do with your body, sorry, yeah. doesn't have an impact on your spirit, and that's what Jezebel was teaching to these people. Mm -hmm. And the the reason that that was was such a, an issue was because it meant then that that they had the encouragement, the backing that they needed 
to go along to these uh, feasts, similar to what you described, Rich, um, and and then be a part of that community. Yeah. Thyatira was um, really famous for the amount of trade that was there. There were lots and lots of trade guilds, and there were. Uh, Chris has actually done a, a great job of, of setting the scene for Thyatira. So actually, again, I'll just refer you to, to Chris <laughs> to give you a bit of the backstory. But going along to these trade guild feasts was a necessity for somebody in the community that wanted to uh, wanted to progress in in their trade. That it's wanted like a form to, of networking, wasn't it? Really, it was. Like, yeah. yeah, but it, but all sorts of um, political and yeah. economical, economical and societal things all tied in to being at, at these feasts. Yeah and doing the practices that they all wanted you to do, to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols, to engage in the sexual immorality that was pleasing to the gods that, so that they would bless the businesses. The temple prostitutes, yeah. All of these things were in the mix of what to us seems like that is completely abhorrent and strange and, and foreign. But for them, this was, this was what they did. Like mm. this, was, this was the environment that they knew and that they grew up in and that they had to try and work and operate in. Yeah. And so it wasn't a case that there was this really stark situation that absolutely should be avoided at all costs and there was a greater way of life living cosily with God. That, that just wasn't the case. It was this is the norm and either you go along with this and you get all of the benefits that come with that, you're recognised in your business and you're not ostracised, mm. you're not fired, you're not um, having to figure out where your money's going to come from, all of those things. Either you, you go to that and you do that, or you trust God mm -hmm. and you don't be a part of that. And you, you expect then and, and invite the suffering and the persecution and the um, isolation that that would bring with it. So that was, that was the choice that they were faced with. Do they take the easy option, listen to what's more palatable, to teaching that's coming from somebody with a reputable voice into the community, that fits in with the lifestyle they want to live. Um, do they do that or do they trust God and stay faithful to him? And obviously, Jesus is saying here, yeah. which is not a surprise to us as, as we look back on it, here's, here's the right answer, mm -hmm. trust me, follow yeah. me. Um, but that's, you know, that can be easier said than done sometimes, so to right. trust and follow God. And just in looking at this, I, I think it, it breaks down to two questions. How well do you know God and how much do you trust God? Do you, how how convicted are you about who God is and what mm. he's said about who he is and about who you are and how much do you trust him to then, in light of who he is, provide for you, sustain you, mm. continue to be faithful to you, have give you all that you need for every different dynamic of life that you go through. Yeah. And for me, that means it's not just about these people at this time with a particular issue which seems so foreign and far away, but mm -hmm. I face those sorts of things weekly daily and, and we all go through lots and lots of different things that um the the easy and palatable thing to hear and do is not what god is saying mm. and it's actually much tougher to stick with who god is and what he said yeah so they had to d decide would they be convicted enough about who god was and and stick with him remain faithful to him or would they go along with the the easier teaching that jezebel was giving and how much would they trust God in light of that? Yeah. I'm just going to read this quote from uh, Tyndale's commentary on Revelation, which just frames this, this trusting of God quite well, I think. It says, On the one hand, the Christian must not deny his faith. On the other hand, he must not deny his membership of society. 
The cause of Christ is not served if Christians appear as a group of old-fashioned people trying to retreat from the real world. Christians, in fact, live in the same world as their neighbours mm. and face the same problems. They must find Christian solutions. The prophetess and her followers had apparently been so ready to conform to the practices of their heathen neighbours that they had lost sight of the essential Christian position. They had exalted expediency over principle. Very good. It's a great quote. And I think to break it down to that, you know, what's quicker, what's more quickly fulfilling, what gives that, that quick buzz, where, where is the, the easy answer, the easy pleasure, the easy route, and where is the way of God mm. and the enduring, steadfast way of God which will see me through? They are the two options. Mm. And so I just uh, have a, a question to consider off the back of this named and shamed because I think it really probably ties in the Nicolaitans and Jezebel yeah. and their teaching and the people in, and us today, which is the question I've just asked really, how much do we know God and how much do we trust God? Mm. How well do you know God and how much do you trust God? So that's quite an open question, but trust that it uh, sparks some conversation or some thoughts if, you, if you're just on your own. But let's just think about those questions, give it a pause, and just for a couple of minutes, a few minutes, how well do we know God and how much do we trust God? Great, so we hope that was a helpful conversation and something obviously we need to keep in mind at all times about what God wants for us and what God thinks about us and, and also then trust in him to, as we follow him, that he'll provide everything that we need. And so today and over the last three series, uh, three episodes rather, I should say, in this series, we've looked at the rewards and riches that we can anticipate and, and look forward to. We've looked at the insightful imagery that we can see about Christ and about the church. And today we've looked at two particular individuals or an individual and a group of people and understanding why God has such an issue with them mm. and why Jesus is challenging the church to not have anything to do with them. And ultimately, you know, God's heart is that we pursue him with all of our hearts, that yeah, we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, spirit, body, everything mm. that we have, we, we follow hard after him and we put Jesus first in everything mm. we seek first. The kingdom and that's essentially what all of these things kind of yeah, boil definitely. down to don't they but yeah the, i think one of the verses that you looked at was in one peter yeah in one. Two, two peter oh sorry two peter, peter one. one yeah i think across all the three times that we've been together like this that what really comes out to me and what i'm going to ask myself or put into practice for myself is that a i need to know who god is and mm. what he has to say that's been clear over these over these three times and then I need to be faithful with the revelation that he's given me about him. I have to go back in, into what he said about himself and, and read more about that and get that into me and let that grow in me. And I need to be faithful to him. Mm. I need to be faithful to God, not just about what he's telling me about himself, but faithful to God as well, which is where 2 Peter 1 comes in. And we've looked at this before, but there's just these, these seven qualities there which are just so useful and applicable and helpful for us right now today so i would suggest that anybody that wants to put these seven things into more um demonstrable practice is onto a great thing absolutely yeah so the, these seven things that will help us that kind of tie all of this together and that we can do right now are in 2 peter chapter 1 and the the section is th verse 3 to 11 but within there uh, the writer says, add to your faith 
goodness, mm -hmm. knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And if we really go after those seven things, adding them to our faith, then I think we're on for some rewards and riches. <laughs> yeah. We're on to see some more insightful imagery about who Jesus is. And we're definitely not going to be named and shamed. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we're going to be okay <laughs> on that front. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So thanks for watching. Hope you've enjoyed that. And uh, if you've not watched the previous ones, by all means, check them out. We just pray that you'll be really blessed. Mm -hmm.